0: Please turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 9. That is our passage for this morning. We are continuing in the life of David. And I think that it says David, the warrior poet. What we have found about David this far is there is more written about him than any other figure of ancient antiquity. And not only is there a lot of material, but the, the vastness of it. A lot of the material about David shows narrative uh, battle scenes and, and, and scenes of that nature. But then you have these psalms that show his heart and his, his, what's going on inside. And so you kind of have the, the two sides of him there. But also we've noticed his life changing. Uh, we began with his early years from anointing, coming, uh, he slaying Goliath, coming into the court of Saul. Those are the early days of, of, of David. And then we had the desert years. Those were the, he's fleeing from Saul. He's running for his life. That lasted for a while. But now he's in the glory days. It began with the ark coming in to Jerusalem. We saw that last week. We noticed that he was ready to build God a house. And God says to him, no, I will be building you a house, establishing his kingdom forever. And then today we're going to see that he is going to offer true love to someone that is, in a sense, an enemy or unlovable. And that's what we're going to learn. By the end of this sermon, you guys are going to be equipped to love your enemy. It's going to be great. I can't wait. So let's follow along in 2 Samuel 9. And David said, "Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake?" Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David. And the king said to him, "Are you Ziba?" And he said, "I am your servant." And the king said, "Is there still, or excuse me, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I might show the kindness of God to him," Ziba said to the king. "There is still a son of Jonathan; he is crippled in his feet." The king said to him, "Where is he?" And Ziba said to the king, "He is in the house of Machir the son of Amiel at Lodabar." Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir to the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house, I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons, excuse me, where am I here? And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table." Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's household became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Maybe we should print that in the bulletin. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that this is indeed the word of God. You have shown us yet again of your loving kindness, and we long to better understand the message here. Help us this morning. Amen. Some of you know that I have been a part of a cohort is what it's called, where I go to Seattle to the uh, Allender Center. Um, it's four different meetings. I've had three, and it's, it's sort of a counseling. You, you read a lot. You, you get to share a story. You're in a group, uh, and that you hear their stories, and then there's lectures. So those are sort of the three ways we interact. One of the uh, books we had to read was called The Neuroscience of Psychotherapy, Um, and it was very dense and very thick, so I have it in my mind to eventually read it someday. But we were assigned like five chapters, so I read those, and one was called The Altruism and Psychotherapy. And what the author was trying to help counselors and psychologists understand is in therapy, when you're dealing with someone who has a lot of issues, it's good to have them think about other people and use altruism, get out and help people. And it's a good thought. In fact, in our very the groups that we're in, you know, you share your story, which is kind of hard, and, and there's some interaction, but then you hear six other stories, and you're getting into their world, and you're, you're helping them, and it really helps. So there's a lot of wisdom in that. And, and the quote for the, uh, for, the, for the chapter, it starts with the quote by Gandhi. It says, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. Sure, and he's right. That's a good point, except... Sometimes, I I mean, if I'm not trying to be cynical, but if the only reason I'm helping other people is because it helps me, right? I'm going to get a good feeling. I'm going to have a breakthrough. It's going to make me feel better. Is that really what the gospel teaches? I think what we see in our passage is something far different. Here's a king, David, who has absolutely no need to help anyone. And yet he's honoring a covenant, a promise. And it's to a person that's really a, a known enemy. And in a way, he's putting his own life at risk to reach out and bring Mephibosheth into his world. I think for for most of us, if we're not careful, we follow the other way, where it's like, well, when we help people, we're, we're choosing and picking situations that will really help my life as well. But there are those situations I'm not willing to look at. There are those people I'm not quite willing to get close to. And the gospel says, no way. The love of God compels you and I to love the unlovable. The gospel compels you and I to love our enemy. So that's what we're going to learn to do. And as I said already, by the end of this sermon, I'm, I'm thoroughly sure you'll be equipped for this. So that's the goal. So we're going to walk through what David's doing and why he's doing it before we apply it to ourselves. In verse 1, David says this, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? David wants to show kindness. The, the word there is... Um, or let me back up. I'm sorry. David is at the height of his power. I mean, he's, he's got his kingdom established. He's built his home. We, the very chapter bef- uh, recently says he was told no about building the temple, but he's got his affairs in order. And, and for many of us, I, I picture you've built your own personal house um, and you've hung that last photograph. You know, you've put the linens away. Everything's where it belongs. And you sit down on the couch. What do you say? Let's turn on Netflix. <laughs> Right Or maybe the Winter Olympics are on tonight. Not David. David gets there and he says, is there not still someone that I can love? Is there not still someone I can care for? And the word hesed um, can mean kindness, love, steadfast love, covenant friendship, loyalty, justice. It's a favorite word among psalmists to refer to God's love for his people. And what David desires to do here is to find anyone. At this point, he has no idea Mephibosheth is even in existence, at least as far as we're told. And, and he just knows his job is to love. And that's what our job is, right? Um, and that's the challenge of the gospel, is sometimes what the world means by love and what the Bible means don't jive. If you have your worship guide turn to the front, I'm going to read the Beekner quote, Frederick Beekner, where he says, "'The love for equals is a human thing.'" a friend for friend, a brother for brother. It is to love what is lovely and loving. I got those two words backwards. And the world smiles. You understand what he's saying so far? That's easy. Anyone, like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, anyone can love their friend. And he moves on. The love for those less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. And he moves forward. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is love for the enemy Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured love for the tortured, excuse me, the tortured love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. That's where David finds himself. It's hard to imagine, by the way, how Mephibosheth could be an enemy, um, especially since the narrator tells us of his his, his handicap. But the truth is, in those days, Kings wiped out former kingdoms and their home, their households it's, it's even in the Old Testament, you see this in later kings. They wipe them out and that sounds harsh. Um, it reminds me of when you show your child the nature show and, and the leopard or the tiger or the lions eating the the thing, the bunny or the the deer or whatever they eat, and the child starts to cry, and you want to say it 's okay it 's okay, this is how it works. you know this is normal, and yet it 's not fully normal and 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 it's not normal that kings wiped out kingdoms, but you would expect David to say, is there anyone left? I need to wipe them out. Or I need to do something to ensure my kingship. But he doesn't. What he says is, I'm going to love my enemy, which is exactly what the gospel calls us to do. And we're going to look at the specific ways David pursues this process and how we can learn from them. The first that is just obvious is he initiates the idea I find that to be amazing. That, and I've already touched on that, but God initiates, right, with our salvation. It's his idea. So David, who's the man after God's own heart, is imaging Yahweh by thinking on his own, I need to love. Who can I go love? I have a covenant I want to follow. Who have I not meet, met yet? But he goes further. Uh, I want you to notice um, when, what he does. He doesn't send Ziba or Ziba to go get. Mephibosheth. Rather, in verse 4, he asks, where is he? When Ziba answers him in verse 5, it says, then King David sent and brought him from the house of maker to the, uh, the son of Emiel at Lodabar. David sends for Mephibosheth. He goes and gets him. Right? God always pursues. God always goes in. God always does the initiation and the rescue. Now, let me just explain to you who Mephibosheth is so you have a little bit more of an understanding of what's happening. When Jonathan and Saul died and the Philistines were on the rampage, his, it, we're told in 1 Samuel that his nursemaid picked him up, he was five years old, and began to flee for their lives and accidentally drops him and his ankles are broken. And and they obviously are not set up properly. I don't know if it was the time in world history or the the circumstances, but they flee, and they go to Lodabar, and most likely it's been about 15 years, and he's grown up with lame feet. And he's grown up with a situation where it appears to me that this person, Ziba, has some authority over him, some sort of, maybe he's taken him under his wing, maybe he's holding him down, we're not really told but I don't think it's been the greatest of, ex- of existences. And you, for sure, I think you see that when Ziba just says, um, there's a son of Jonathan. What would you do next if it were you? You would say, his name is Bob. You know, his name is Dave. No, he's lame in both feet. Now, it could be he's saying, don't bother with him, he's no, he's no harm. But it's just also possible that he's belittling him as well. Referring to him by his worst infirmity. Now, Mephibosheth, no doubt, would have been told the stories throughout his life of really the evils of King David. Remember, Saul wanted him dead. That was his chief mission. He fought off the Philistines. But what Saul would rather be doing during those years was finding and killing King David. And that had to infect the entire camp, the entire population of Saul's people, to where Mephibosheth had to know this man David is dangerous, this man David is the enemy right? Well, he's called to David's kingdom, and he comes in trembling. He gets on his feet. He's in utter shock, and David does the third thing. Not only does he initiate, does he send for him, but he does something else. He names him. Right there, Mephibosheth is on the ground, terrified, and King David's voice says, Mephibosheth. I want you to imagine the king naming you, saying your name, recognizing you for who you are. And then finally, he adopts Mephibosheth. He says, not only am I not going to kill you, you're gonna come into my home. You're gonna have all the lands restored to you that Saul had. You're gonna have Ziba, Ziba, however you want to, and his, his, his sons and his servants take care of your land and provide for your family and their offspring, but you're gonna dine In my home, at my table, and you see that toward the end of the passage, um, like one of the king's sons. That's in verse eleven. Wow, that is beautiful. And so this is a picture of what it means to love your enemy. You ready to close? Y'all ready to do this? Let me just recap. You have the idea. Who do I not like? Who's my enemy? You send for them, you see them, like you look at their face and you name them, like you don't just ignore them and label them, but you get to know them, and then you adopt them. Now that might just mean a cup of coffee at first, you know, but but over time that would be your heart. How in the world could we possibly begin to even get our mind around that? Well, the reason for David's doing this is rooted in a covenant. See, David and Jonathan... Mephibosheth's father, had a covenant, an agreement. And if you go back to that agreement, what's happened is Jonathan saved David's life. Jonathan, who's loyal to Saul, who's the bad king, knows David's the anointed and loves him as his own soul and who knows he's the, the true king, essentially saves David from Saul's wrath and, and makes this covenant with David. When you're king because I think Jonathan knew his days were numbered. When you're the king, please don't kill my offspring. Don't end my offspring. Like, see to them. But David goes far beyond that, I believe. In our passage, he starts by saying, is there anybody left in the house of Saul? That could be any of anybody. Even though Mephibosheth happened to be Dave, uh, Jonathan's offspring, he opened the door to anybody. But more than that, he says... Um, not only did he not, he could have sent a note. Ziba, take a note and post it on the door of Mephibosheth's house. He's not going to be killed by me. Okay, that'd be great. I'm not going to die. Thank you. Whew. Now he brings him in. He adopts. He goes far beyond the, the initial covenant. What motivates that, I believe, is just this, this love for Jonathan and love for, that, for what Jonathan provided for him. How are we with covenants and vows and promises? What vows have you made? Like we have marriage vows. Do you even remember your marriage vows? Right? Raise your hand now, We don't make vows to children, but I think they're kind of understood. We make church vows. Like every time I talk to a person in the church, they come in, I want to show them their vows. Before you talk with me, here's, my, here's your vows. Just kidding. But we do make these commitments to each other. Some are spoken, some are not spoken. But often in our culture, we're encouraged to do what's best for us. And David is showing that he's not doing what's best for him. In some ways, he's putting himself at risk. I know I used an illustration similar to this, but it was a different person. It was, this is B.B. Warfield. B.B. Warfield, uh, an esteemed biblical theologian of old Princeton. Uh, he lived in the late 1800s. Many of his works are still circulated and read, and very valuable when he was pursuing his studies in Germany, uh, it was also a time where he and his wife were honeymooning. And uh, I guess they just used that as, hey, let's use this time. And so I don't know how fun that was for the wife. But um, they went on a hike into the mountains, and there was a huge thunderstorm that I didn't actually harmed them specifically, but the experience was such a shock to her, her name is Annie, that she never fully recovered. And for the rest of their marriage, she was more or less an invalid. Um, and Warfield only left her f- for seminary duties, and never more for two hours at a time. Now, what he could have done to keep that covenant was just say, I'm not going to divorce you. You're here. There's someone helping you. I'm going to go do, just pour my heart into my work. But he didn't. She was number one. And he loved her well. In fact, for 39 years, they were together after this event. And one of the students noted, who wrote, for the biography, he wrote, the gentleness of his manner was striking proof of the loving care with which he surrounded her. And so what we find then, I think, in that story and in the story of David and Jonathan is the covenant we have for us with God in Christ, is strong enough to help us love in difficult circumstances and love the difficult. But where does that come from? Right? How does that happen? That's what I want to spend the rest of our time with. Um, in John 13, Jesus shows how you do it. Jesus sh- demonstrates by washing feet. Remember the foot washing in John 13. Jesus is doing a living parable where he disrobes, he gets down, and he serves and he washes the disciples' feet, and then he rerobes and he explains himself. He explains the parable, and he says, do you know what I've just done for you? And, of course, they're probably in shock that this even happened. He said, I'm demonstrating that I have left heaven, Philippians 2, right? I've come from heaven into your world as a servant. I've died for you. I've washed you, and you're clean. And now I'm returning to my place. And he was very close to his own death and resurrection. And the question, I think, and then he tells them, by the way, what you should do in response to this is wash each other's feet. So we have about 20 minutes left, and there's some water coming in. Just kidding. Some of the guests are like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> what does he mean? Well, get dirty. In that culture, feet washing was disgusting, disgusting. It was meant for a slave girl that was Gentile. And here's Jesus doing it. And so as a church, our vision is to wash each other's feet. By that I mean serve each other in very difficult ways and serve the world around us. That's the covenant we've entered into. That's the agreement we've made. Not just to our spouses and our own children for sure, but to this world around us. Stillwater, Oklahoma, America. And all that come in, I mean, just the university alone, the the number of nationalities that we can minister to, and the Holy Spirit wants to use this church for that purpose. You have another example in Galatians 3 where Paul has come back, or he's writing into this church that was at one point on fire, and he says, Galatians, like, it was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Which it wasn't. They were only told about it. But that's how vivid it is. When you hear the cross preached, it's as if you were there. The Spirit shows you the links Jesus has gone to to save you. And he's looking at the, the Galatians. He's writing to them. Who has bewitched you? Why have you switched from faith in the Spirit for your salvation to simply works of the law, which are not even appropriate anyway? What are you driven by? How do you love other people? It's by recognizing what Jesus has done for you. When Emily and I, lived, we went to Japan uh, as a mission, on a mission trip in 1998, no, no children. We'd been married about a year, and we arrived at Narita in Tokyo, and it was snowing. And I thought, this is horrible. It's not how I picture Japan. And we drive not, Narita's a long way from where the team was, but we went right by the team, met some people, and then went to where we were going to live for a year, 45 minutes away, which might as well have been Siberia. And the man that was dropping us off had planned on picking us up a week earlier, but our visa was delayed. So he's like, kind of got the last minute notice, go get the bakers, bring them out and help them out. Well, he had things to do. So it was kind of like, all right, he's out. And the food that was in the kitchen was a week old, because I guess a week before he was on his game. And we were in this cold apartment, because the heat's not on, it's too expensive, so we've got to figure out how to turn the heat on. It's written in Japanese. I didn't know, we didn't know how to do it. And it's like, ha, <laughs> ha, And the phone, like, how would you call anyone? The digit's like one, it's number, number, dash, four. I mean, who, ah. And we, Emily said, no one will know if we leave tomorrow. <laughs> that we can accomplish. Honey, let's just give it a day. Let's give it 24 hours. Let's do the 24-hour rule. Well, we decided after we got comfortable in Japan and life got better. By the way, the next day, a woman showed up to take us, I think, to lunch. So we had to make it to lunch. I think we had a bite to eat. Milk was bad. Um, so we go to lunch, and she's like, I, for her, this was like, I get to come to Makuhari where we lived and have Indian food. And we're like, no, we're having McDonald's. We know there's a McDonald's. We saw that. We're having McDonald's and that's where we ate. Uh, but, we got, but we made a vow to each other and we, I think we verbalized this vow. Every new member to this team will be met by us and we will never let this happen again because of the disaster we faced. How did we do? Very poorly. Because we got comfortable. We learned, our, we learned how to get here and there and how to say, you know, mushy mushy on the phone and how to do the heat and pretty soon it's like, Someone shows up to Japan, they can figure it out like we did. Come on, you want to be a missionary? You came here, wasn't our idea. I think that's where we are as a church, and I don't mean grace, I mean the church. We say we believe the gospel, but we really act as if, what's wrong with you? I figured it out. Can't you figure this out? And that's why we don't love our neighbor as ourselves. That's why we're not loving our enemies. Because we really do, if we're honest, think we somehow figured something out, some little thing. And the gospel says, no, 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 no. Right now, today, you have committed enough sin that you need the blood of Christ freshly applied to your soul. You're not losing your salvation, but he sustains you. You're in him, and you cannot forget the cross. There's no time in your life before you go to heaven where the cross is not as significant as it's always been. And the Galatians forgot that, and we forget that. So, I was thinking about illustrations for situations that are difficult. And there's this, for me, and maybe for our culture, there's this image, and it's Helen Keller, right? I remember seeing the Helen Keller story when I was young. And I remember seeing her teacher, Ann Sullivan, come in. And it was an actress playing it, Helen Keller. But I just, just empathizing with how horribly difficult to teach a blind girl who's deaf, who doesn't, who's somewhat belligerent to her family. Like anything, how could you possibly do that? And then in comes this angel, this teacher, and if you know anything about the story, they have like a a 39 or 49-year relationship. Um, Anne moves in with them. She, I mean, she's physical and gives her, you know, attunement and touch and teaching and educates Helen, and they become very, very close soulmates. So go do do what Anne Sullivan did, right? So I thought, let me just see who Anne Sullivan is. And I read her story. She was born in 1866, and um, her mother dies of tuberculosis. Her father's abusive, and her father eventually leaves the family. Anne, at the age of five, contracted an eye disease called trachoma, T-R-A-C-H-O-M-A, which severely damaged her sight. Later, I do think she had a surgery that improved it. And that whole ordeal puts her in a school where she's fighting for survival, to learn, to not be, not to succumb to these handicaps. And these women come into her life and love on her, and she grows into a, a very amazing student to the point where, when the story of Helen comes across their table, they recommend Anne Sullivan. And it just was a very, it just, to me it's huge to say, it was her own story her own trauma, her own difficulty that helped her not grow comfortable and say, I'm done with that life. But I'm going in. I'm going into a harder situation. I'm going where the pain is. And so the question is this. As a Christian, do you move toward pain, toward evil, toward difficulty? Or are you doing what we did in Japan and just trying to get your stuff in order for yourself? So, in in conclusion, not do what David did. Recognize that you're not David. Recognize you're Mephibosheth. We are lame. God pursued us. Jesus calls you by name. Jesus adopted you, rescued you, renamed you, set you at the king's table. Right? That's why we sang Psalm 23 earlier. You are at the king's table. You are his. And when you recognize that, you'll know you're fully believing that when you start moving into difficult situations. Application, last two minutes. Who are the people that you're having difficulty with loving? Pursue them. Start with praying, Lord, help me, even before there's a name. Even desire this, like David did, before there was a name. Secondly, when the name comes, just go for that person. Name them. All I mean by that is know them. Know about them. Learn them. Get to know each other. right? And then adopt them. What I mean would be have a relationship as far as the other person might allow. So this week, each of you are going to set appointments with each other. No. If I start getting phone calls, I'll know, oh, no, I was the unlovable. That's okay, though. I'll take it. So does that make sense? Are we encouraged? The gospel drives us toward the problem to people that we call problems that they're not. And we're probably problem people for other people. So we, we move toward the unlovable. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that the gospel you've delivered to us in your son Jesus doesn't just make us comfortable, but it makes us agents of change. The church has always been the group that runs into disaster, the group that goes toward pain, the group that goes with this disease and heartache. It's the Christians that move in. Lord, now that we're in the 21st century and we're comfortable, may it never be said of us that we were not that type of people. Help us to not grow so accustomed that we forget our first love and the rescue that you've given us. We praise you, Jesus, for your salvation and glory for us. Amen.